Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Kenny Holmes checking in. Robert, are you with me? I am with you in the beautiful month of May. I think that we actually are blessed with an appearance today by the very famous composer, Carol. Oh, no. Who is blowing <laughs> up the internet. Yeah, your, your piano medleys are killing it. Aw, oh, thanks, wow. guys. I recommend to all our score <laughs> listeners check out the Rachel Portman medley performed by composer Carol. It's Thanks, beautiful. audience. Speaking of joining us uh, today on the show, another big guest, another guest from London. He makes his home at Air Lindhurst Air Studios, which we uh, profiled in Score, a film music documentary. You know his music from five James Bond films, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, Casino Royale, and Quantum of Solace. He also wow. did Independence Day with you, Robert, at Fox. Wow. And One of the Stargate. most remarkable experiences for me. Yep, Stargate. He had done just before. Godzilla. Yep. Um, he also won an Emmy with Michael Price for Sherlock. He's done yes. so many great things, and he's like the funniest composer on Twitter by far. <laughs> David Arnold joining the show today. Hey, David. Woo. Excited to have him on. So uh, we will get to him in just a bit. We, of course, want to take a moment to... Thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for composers, especially uh, many of the composers that join us here on the show. And they just had a big week, um, that big announcement that they had on Thursday, releasing mm-hmm. two new editions of their best-selling BBC Symphony Orchestra library, including the Discover edition. Now, this is really cool for uh, students and aspiring composers. It's it's a smaller version of the BBC Symphony Orchestra package for just 49 bucks. And if you can't That's even amazing. swing it for the $49, um, they're doing a thing where if you go on their website and complete a form, they'll send you the package for free. Um, you just have to wait two weeks. I'm getting one. I got mine. What, what a deal. Yeah, yeah it's pretty no, cool. It's crazy. Um, and stick around after the show. We have a clip from the BBC Symphony package in action. There's so many great sounds in there. And... Um, it's the BBC Symphony hey, Orchestra at your fingertips. 49 bucks. I don't know if that would even buy lunch for a member of the BBC <laughs> Orchestra. And I've had to do that. Hey, we should also talk about Spitfire's Composer Magazine, with which is videos and interviews they've done with composers. Yeah. They've had some of the composers that we've had on the show, like Justin Hurwitz yep. from La La Land. The Newton I, Brothers, too. Yeah. I know they talk a little bit about Ozark. And Handmaid's Tale, one of my favorite scary shows. I loved it. And um, you know, listeners, we have a deal for you because so we love you so much. We have 20% off your first purchase at Spitfire. 50, 50 different libraries that that promo code works on. But remember, this is a podcast, so do it right away because this uh, this little promo we're telling you about is going to live on in our show, but the promo code may not. 
So use the promo code SCORE2020 and you'll get 20% off your first order with Spitfire. And um, take advantage of that uh, little BBC Symphony package. 49 bucks, can't beat it. Or wait two weeks, mm-hmm. get it for free. Yeah, jeez. Um, Kenny, you've been watching some cool shows. I know we talk about it between our each episode. Yeah, what you know, you I finally you I watched uh, the the movie Bad Education, which we learned about mm. um, that Michael Abels was scoring right after we did his show, his episode last year. That's right. Um, and Where this is this was a straight Carol to, and I sang. Yeah, I, this was a straight to HBO film starring Hugh Jackman and and Allison Janney about the I think it was the biggest. Um, embezzlement Some kind of it was the biggest yeah. uh, uh, school district embezzlement case in the history of the United States um, hmm. but I was really impressed with the film first off the story was great the performances were great but Michael Abels he really secured in my opinion that he's not pigeonholed as a as a horror film score composer yeah um, the score oh, was great. really good, and it was there was a lot. They they had a lot of score in that film for not an action movie or you know something, and and it was really powerful. I felt like it was it was it was important, and it was used properly. It wasn't like too much music, but he right. he had a chance to shine in that. Did you see that, Carol? I haven't, but I listened to the score. Oh, you listened to the score? It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a big it's score. Great. There's a lot there. Um, so I was. There is so much to watch. Yeah, it was it was good. It's a great film. And another thing we did the, over the weekend, my fiance had never seen Avatar, um, so we jumped in on Disney Plus and rewatched it from beginning to end. First time I've seen it since I saw it in theaters with 3D glasses on, and um, <laughs> it. I felt like it was it was way more of a big deal to me at the theater with 3D glasses. I remember leaving thinking like real life kind of sucks. Because it was so uh. beautiful, um, but I, the music—I mean, James Horner really created yeah. that atmosphere with that music. It, it was so good. Robert, you worked on that film, right? I did, and uh, it's funny. I wonder how it holds up. I haven't seen it for a few years either. And they got the the a sequel lot. coming at some point. I know. Yeah. Um, I think New Zealand—they were able to start working again with this whole crisis yeah. we're in so that's that's moving forward but one thing i wanted to ask you about that uh, i wanted to save for the show is when the credits song came on i i couldn't help but wonder who the artist was so i looked it up and it was an artist named leona lewis and i specifically yeah. remember her because at the time uh back back when this film came out i was an fm radio dj and her songs were beaten into my skull, better in time and bleeding love. And I remember everyone thinking that like she was like the new Mariah Carey and she was going to mm-hmm. explode. And then you kind of didn't hear much from her anymore. And I couldn't help but wonder, was she always the choice for that song? Cause they went from Celine Dion with Titanic to Leona Lewis. And I, I, I would love to know if there was someone else and what the story huh. was. On that. It's so funny. Yeah, we basically ended her career with Avatar, something that <laughs> oh, Fox no. had, a, had a special uh, special talent for. No, Leona Lewis, strangely enough, was not the first choice. If you can imagine the biggest movie director on the planet at that point, Jim Cameron, who had just come off Titanic, which was the number one movie in the world still, until it was moved off that perch by Avatar. Yeah. He had a uh, dream choice to sing the end title song, and that was Beyonce. Oh. oh. And um, 
of course we wanted Beyonce, and I was tasked with reaching out to Beyonce, and Beyonce was interested. Did you just but call her on Beyonce- the cell? You said, hey, it's hey, Robo. Hey, hey, B, listen, RK here. <laughs> What's up? Um, it's your boy. Oh, yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay, sure. I'll I'll ask Beth. That's Mrs. Kraft. You know, <laughs> B and Jay-Z wanted us to come over for dinner. You know, I was usually busy, but sometimes. Actually, no. Somehow I reached out to, I guess, Beyonce's agent, representative, manager at the time. Um, so I had met Beyonce, actually, when she was in Destiny's Child. And she actually, afterwards, she came. That's a story for another day. But... um. The response was a number that upset director Cameron. Beyonce was the biggest star in the world. She did have a quote, as they say, which is the price for singing a theme song at the end of a movie. Um, It was in some ways appropriate. If you're Beyonce, that's what you charge to sing a song. Mm. But Jim Cameron thought, probably not incorrectly, I'm Jim Cameron, this is Avatar, that's too much money uh, for this opportunity. And it's something I ran into a lot, which is uh, the folks in the film industry thought they are important and who are these music business people? And the people in music business always thought, we've got huge careers, these films come and go, Mm. Uh, we have to get paid. So we ran into that situation almost instantly where we couldn't make a deal. And... I think that what happened, if I'm not mistaken, is Jim Cameron showed up a few days later and said, my daughter loves this song, Bleeding Love. Do you know the singer Leona Lewis? And P.S., Leona Lewis flies from London. Uh, James Horner's written the song, and that's how she ended up singing the biggest movie in history's theme song, at the end of Avatar. It didn't hurt the box office that the song did not perform at radio. Um, I don't even remember that song coming out on the radio. Do you know what? You uh, are not alone in that, um, not remembering it, because the song, you know what I can say, and I think it's a good way to segue. Do you know what happened to the Titanic when I'm at the end of that movie? (laughs) That would be what happened to our song, which was called something like you're blue and you have pointy ears <laughs> and you look slightly computer generated but i love you so the short so- answer to that is beyonce costs bank so you had to go with plan f and we did a wonderful song and a beautiful song with Leona and nobody seemed to agree safe to assume so- leona's not coming back for avatar 2 uh, stranger things have happened. So we'll see how that ends up. But um, I imagine they're going to Megan the Stallion or someone. <laughs> Your favorite. I'm a like savage. That. Yeah. I'm an avatar. <clears throat> Ratchet. Bougie. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, my God. Oh, no. What is happening to this show? Yeah. Uh, you, you said you've been watching the Eddie, and, and I'm interested about the music i have i saw the first episode of the eddie and i i think i'd like to watch a few more episodes and maybe next week i can deliver a 
a little bit of a perspective because I know so many of the folks involved and love so many of the folks involved, and it is pure music start to finish. So I want to get a little better handle on the story, which you're really, at the end of episode one, which I saw last night, kind of wondering what happens. And um, I think it's going to be an amazing series, but let's put it on the Okay, we'll check back in on the it's to but, be it, but it's 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 right up your alley with the jazz Boy, club. Is it? I would say if you open up the dictionary and look up Robert Kraft's wheelhouse, they have a full page picture of the Eddie right there. Man, it's a <laughs> jazz club in Paris. This is in my next life. I'm playing piano there. <laughs> All right. Uh, Wait a second. Uh oh. We got mail. Did we get that? mail. We got Uh-oh. mail. Score the mailbox. We got mail. Uh, this comes from Robert Rodriguez from okay. New Paltz, New York. Do you know where that is, Robert? I know that. Oh, I sure do. Right near, uh, it's right near Poughkeepsie. And Mohonk is uh, the name of a great hotel there. What's Robert have to say? Robert wants to know, do you have any tips for a composer looking to network their music, especially if they're a bit more remote and not in L.A.? And we've talked to... A few composers about this staying in London, you know, Rachel staying in London, and and your one tip was to uh, get an LA phone number, which I loved that tip last uh, week. Yeah, yes, I advised that um, once to a composer to say get a phone that has a, a Los Angeles area code, so producers and directors think you're nearby, and then you just figure out down how to get on a plane. Um, can I make little... can I make one guess on this, and and Shoot. you can tell me if I'm right or wrong? Has there ever been an easier time to network? Because it seems like 20 years ago, this is a really hard thing to navigate, which is getting your information out there. I mean, Pinar Toprock said she sat in her living room and mailed DVDs and CDs, and you know, set up a UPS in her living room and just was mailing stuff out, and now. It seems like it's a lot easier, although it's probably more flooded, too, because everyone can do it. But is is it easier than ever to, to reach out to people, do you think? Yes, you're absolutely accurate. Um, and you can pretty much find any composer's website and for information and, Instagram. and do that. I think Instagram, he wants to know how you stand out, though. How do you stand out from the crowd, would you say? That might be the million-dollar question. Because um, the answer is really simple and also really difficult. The answer is, more than ever before, it's about the music. Now it can't be, well, we had a good interview. Or I have a friend that knows somebody and I got to meet the guy. Because if it is all online, the only thing a listener has to go on is pure audio. Unless, of course, you can send audio with picture which I always recommend, which is can you score a scene? Even if you haven't done a movie, can you score an online trailer or take a scene out of a movie that's already been scored, remove the music, and do your own score? But now this is really about the quality of your work and the quality of your demo. So it's never been easy, but um, now it's really up to composers to put their best foot forward. I think that's the expression. Yeah. And, and like, you know, what Danny Elfman sure. said, yeah. the, 
there's one thing which is, you know, having the having the good music. You have to you have to be talented, but you also have to be ready. So you always yeah. you want to be constantly writing, constantly ready for when someone calls you and says, "Hey, I got this gig. Can you do it?" The confidence level needs to be there, and you've got to be ready to fire when somebody calls. And I think that might be just as important as, you know, having a YouTube page or something like that. It's just just knowing that, like, when the time comes that you are ready to to do that, because sometimes people will get an opportunity and that that might be your only chance. You've just nailed the other part of being a composer. You can write beautiful music and send it to somebody and they say, I love this. But being a composer for a film or a television show as I've often discussed with some of the great composers, just having the music is one small part of it. Have you ever been under that kind of pressure to write, rewrite, rewrite, and rewrite, and de-write, and edit, and throw out, and rewrite before 9 a.m. the next morning? Thankfully, no. That sounds like the most humbling experience. That's the kind of battle-weary experience and that you need as a composer and often directors will say, I love this. Have you ever done it before? The answer better be, I've done it many times. Yeah. Because if it's, I've never done this, it's a little nervous making. So the more experience you can have in the actual trenches of creating film music, uh, the more confidence you will build. And let me just say this social media Use all yes. these tools. They're they're right here. The the tools are there. They're free, and you have the ability to. I mean, twenty years ago, you couldn't tweet at your favorite composer and and get a response. I mean, there are people out there that can see what you're posting, and you know, there's right. people like like Tina Guo who got the call from Hans Zimmer and is now a touring musician and playing on every big film score. And it's not because she is any better or worse than anyone out there. It's just that she was ready for the call and she was talented and she had her stuff accessible. I think it's plain and simple. And I think uh, that if you use the Spitfire $49 (laughs) BBC Symphony package, you will be one step ahead. See how I did that? good start. I brought it full circle. I love it. Can I share... Wait, can I share an advice? Oh, te- Carol, please. That I also give to myself as an aspiring composer is that don't limit your connections to just people in the music industry. Go connect with people in film and TV and podcast and animation because these people are, you know, people who are, who will actually give you jobs, you know, not people in just music. So that's something that I'm also working on and yeah, just something to Great think about. Great advice. There's never been more media out there that needs music. As yes. uh, I think, was it Bear McCreary that said that? Somebody said you that might, on our show. Let's credit Bear. I'm sure he said it before. There's ne- there's too. never been a time where there's more stuff out there that needs original music. Robert, good luck. Robert, thanks for writing Robert. in. Uh, if you have a question for the show, you can hit us up at score the mailbox at epicleft.com e-p-i-c-l-e-f-f.com we will try to get to your question on the show and uh if you feel the need to record yourself asking the question maybe we'll just play it and uh save our vocal cords nice coming up after the break grammy and emmy winning composer david arnold joining the show stick around we'll be right back 
Hey, Score fans, it's Kenny. We are stoked to be back for Season 3, and we couldn't have done it without your support. Be sure to connect with us on social media for the latest guest announcements, video clips, industry news, and more. You can find us on all the social platforms. Twitter is at ScoreThePodcast, Instagram at ScoreMovie, and Facebook at ScoreMovie, or you can just search Score, a film music documentary. Also, please remember to click subscribe on your podcast app. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a short review. It helps more people discover the show. All right, enough business. Let's get back to it. This is Andy Grush. This is Taylor Stewart. And we are the Newton Brothers. And you are listening to Score the Podcast. Let's go back to the show. Let's do it. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. Another week, another fabulous London guest. Um, like we said last week with uh, Rachel Portman, we've been wanting to get all these great composers who live in London on the show. And since we do it in person, this has kind of been a blessing in disguise. Our guest this week, uh, he's known, for, of course, for five James Bond films, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, Casino Royale, and Quantum of Solace. Also, Independence Day, Stargate, Godzilla, and, uh, of course, Sherlock, and many other great works. David Arnold joining the show. David, how you doing, man? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, applauding crowds. Now, the Keep crowd is meet. enormous. You know, we have them all sitting six feet apart, too. Two meters away from each other, whatever you do. Yeah, exactly. We miss the crowd. We're the only one with a crowd these days. I think. In fact, we're going to have to get you a score the podcast surgical mask. You know, we're going to give them out. Surgical is the key word. As merchandise. David, in fact, we know that you were feeling not your best recently. Did you get a touch of the the germ? Touch of the coronas. Yes. Um, Well, I mean, I'm assuming that I did. I mean, you can't really tell until someone gives you a test, but no one has, though. So, yeah, yeah, I had all the things that I'd read about that it is, apart from it didn't travel to my lungs, which was obviously uh, an amazing thing. Um, So I had all the other stuff, which I think is like sort of heavyweight flu stuff. Um, But the the, the telltale thing was a complete lack, loss of of taste and smell. So everything... Uh, everything smelt and tasted like sort of rancid metal. I mean, my cooking is like that anyway, but it actually made everything <laughs> taste like that. And wanting to sort of sleep every 15 minutes, you know, you had a little burst of activity and then it was, you were just out. It was the, it was the weirdest thing I've ever had. Did I you mean, have I'm any like musical dreams or anything while you were, cause that, that kind of puts you out from what I hear. Right. Um, no, not that I can remember. I mean, uh, I mean, I usually have the weirdest, weirdest dreams. Um, I mm. mean, they are really, really bizarre. There's, there's some. There was about a year ago where I was having a sequence of dreams where I was trying to go to the toilet, but Paul McCartney kept coming in. We were on a chocolate battleship. <laughs> um, I don't know what that means. My dream life is also active, and I also wonder if anyone will be able to tell. My taste is generally poor in all things anyway. So, I mean, I just lowest common denominator so so when if i have a loss of taste no one will be able to tell do you know when you were oh, feeling I poorly i yes i i had a phone number of course we'll have a chance to talk about our fabulous time working together but i i dialed a number that's sorely out of date so i thought well nobody must be at air studios where you make your home but let me just dial the reception desk there maybe Carl or Maria are standing by still taking calls and someone was at air studios. And I wondered 
first of all, a couple things. Is air open during this moment, or do they just put? No, it's not. Poor it's completely shut down. But they have a they have a guy on the front desk. Actually, Glenn, who's the um, Glenn, yeah, uh, who's a secu- who's a security guard, actually was in uh, the Royal Free with Corona and diagnosed, but he's back home now. Oh. Um, so yeah, you don't have to go very far. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it, it sort of finds whoever it wants to, you know, find quite easily. I think. And, I think um, it's. Yeah, it's not not not. It's a term. It's, it's a sort of. Over. Well, we're glad you're on the on the mend. Yeah, and thanks for sure, coming on. Certainly yeah. glad. In fact, yeah, while we're while we're on it, so one of the questions I always wonder, which I've never had the chance to ask you, is what was the genesis of you getting a room at Air, which I was painfully envious of for many years. That you had a room in the coolest recording studio in the world. Well, Without, I don't I know was, if there are others that are in there. Is it just you? No, well, there are more people now, but um, but when I asked if I could be there, um, they were they were all bedrooms right at the top of the building, like in the belfry, and uh, and they were bedrooms for when when people used to you know go to places and live there to make records. And when I was there, I think Greg Penny was was producing an Elton John record, hmm. uh, and I got on really well with Greg. I mean, I loved I, I was sort of slightly obsessed with the KD Lang album that he produced on Janu. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so we talked a lot about that and, um, uh, and you know, he was there and working all the time so he could work late and all that sort of stuff. And I thought it's, uh, you know, I'd worked at home and actually it's quite nice to be around other people, um, sometimes. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, the great thing about having a room at air is that you are on your own, but you're surrounded by experts in sort of everything. So if ever there's an issue or a problem with anything, then you just pop down to the tech department and say can you have a look at this and then as other people started getting rooms as well you know and they decide you know you know like most people you know writing rooms were becoming the thing as fewer and fewer musicians came in the door more and more people you know are doing things at home and uh, or certainly on a you know on a, in a sort of digital audio uh, environment uh, and so you know you notice that there were fewer and fewer players coming through the door which is always sad uh, but there was this kind of boom in uh, in that sort of home recording, uh, and um, and then other people started getting rooms there, and so you've got this little community of of composers, you know, who, who which is a lovely thing because you mm. know it's an it's an isolating it's an isolating gig. I mean, that's what's so. I mean, people have said this a million times before, but you know, illustrators, writers, composers, you know, they work in isolation anyway. So this whole you know, enforced isolation thing isn't actually that different. <laughs> um, certainly, you know, certainly as far as, you know, my mum as a, you know, as growing up in, in, in the Second World War uh, in London, where if you walked out the door, you could literally die quite easily, you know, um, something mm. would fall on you. Yeah, uh, and you know, so she spent all our lives telling us that the world is a dangerous place and, you know, and, and just be careful about everything. And so, you know, this situation is almost like the perfect storm for her. You know, she's like, this is what I've been waiting for. You know, <laughs> the uh, It's like the environment where everything is dangerous and you've got to be really super careful. And you see, I was right all the time. So, you know, I feel quite well prepared for that aspect. Oh, that's lucky. Um, Do you but, have um, a rig at home so that if you're isolated at home, can you not work if you had to? Yes, I've got a little writing set up at home. Uh, I mean, some things I do at home because it just feels nice to do them. I mean, mm. a couple of the Sherlock uh, uh, seasons uh, I did at home. It just felt for some reason quite a... I think television is an intimate environment. You know, it's an intimate medium. And it it 
it comes into people's homes and and that's a very different feeling to going to see something at a cinema there's something about a film which which kind of slightly keeps you at arm's length um and i think that's to do with uh, the the environment of of cinema you know where you go in and you you kind of undertake a, 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 a an agreement with a crowd that you know hopefully you won't be talking through it or making phone calls i know there's a few people that that don't always adhere to that um you know we social hate construct those people. Uh, yeah right so but you know the thing is it's like in a slightly in a theater you know when 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 the film starts everyone shuts up and watches it yeah, that film's on in your home, and people are talking and getting up and doing with, and it's really odd because I found that um, that, that, that that walking around sometimes with people that I'm working with, if they're television people, the amount of people that will feel the license to go up to them and start talking to them immediately is a hundred times more than if I'm going around with someone who's a film actor or actress. You know, it's like <laughs> there, it's like they sort of whisper behind hands, "Oh, look, it's." so and so you know look who he is look who he is you know but if i'm with someone you know it's like sometimes it's like with benedict or um or the guys from little britain you know um like comedy shows um if you're with those and people shout at them across the street you know i mean it's quite it's just a different thing if you're in people's living rooms like that yeah. it's a much more in- intimate, intimate thing so sometimes i feel like those things are you know i like working at home at things like that but other other things that you know, that require a, 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 a certain breadth, I suppose. I just feel happier being somewhere else, you know, to get into the mindset of being somewhere else. So it's not a long walk. I've never have. heard that, and it's so interesting. The fact that you you reside inside Air Lindhurst must be kind of cool because not only is it a, a film scoring stage, but a lot of music is done there, just all kinds of music. Um, I'm curious... Mm. Do you sit in on other sessions and draw inspiration or like what's the coolest session that you've you've kind of been a fly on the wall for because you get a lot of access well, you don't, yeah you don't really yeah, you don't really just walk in you know it's like any it's like any any session you know it just be extraordinarily rude and presumptuous <laughs> but what i love about it is that sometimes you go down at lunchtime you know you've been working by yourself all morning you go down at lunchtime and and whoever is in the studio is in the in the cafeteria and you end up talking to them. And, and I've ended up doing gigs with people who were just in the cafeteria. You know, I mean, like George Michael was there for a couple of years, ended up doing three songs on, uh, I think, the record before last. Paul McCartney was doing something in one and ended up three weeks later doing Eleanor Rigby with him at the uh, Roundhouse for the BBC Electric Proms. You know, sometimes it's just easier when yeah. you bump into someone. They go, like, do you fancy doing this? I've done so, so much stuff has happened because of that, you know, and... and uh, it is it is a lovely thing, um, and it feels sort of oddly natural. Um, but you know, I realise it's a very privileged position to be, you know, to be able to rent a room in a place like that. I mean, I don't live there, live there, but um, I mean, I'm there a lot. Uh, obviously, not now, but um, so yes, I do have a little writing rig uh, at home, which is fine for writing. You know, in terms of like finished stuff, all the big stuff is up at air, the big keyboards, and you know things that you wouldn't have room for, and the amps and the guitars. And um, but you know, like where I am now, um, I've got just a little writing setup with a couple of guitars and uh, and you know just everything in, uh, in in the laptop on on Logic, so I can still do stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, sometimes you just find the right environment for doing it. When I when I did the uh, the the musical Made in Dagenham, I wrote all the songs in my house. 
mm-hmm. and Richard the lyricist would, would come around and we'd just sit there for a couple of hours um it's, you know it's a bedroom it's a bedroom with stuff in it and, uh, and um it just it just feels nice it's like well, yeah, when you're trying to, you know when you're trying to get in touch with things uh which are intimate to you and music is about intimacy uh, and openness and when you're trying to access that sort of stuff sometimes being at home you know lucky if it's quiet um sometimes it can help that you know because you feel like you can you can make your mistakes there you know and it's like it's not out in the world yet people aren't just going to walk in you know you're not going to get a knock on the door and you know in the old days like george martin had come in with with john barry to say hello you know and it's like and, oh what are you doing let's have a listen you go like, actually no thanks Oof, uh, no pressure you know, you know what i mean it's like you don't you don't want to play anyone's stuff that's not finished properly so being at home feels like a nice a nice thing to do in that instant you've actually touched on something i've never thought about you've touched on a couple one is writing for films versus writing for tv and the intimacy mm. of the space that you write in for television mm. as opposed to a big space for a huger volume with uh with a movie and then i thought what about writing for the Olympics, you were writing for an outdoor, enormous space. Was yeah. That, how, how did you get that gig? First off, like, what was the evolution? It was Danny, of that? right? Because that's a that's quite a chair to to be sitting in. Um. Well, I I mean I don't know uh, why <laughs> they thought why they thought of me. Um. But I mean, at that point with with the Olympics, I'd done a lot of things, you know, and it covers a lot of ground. The Olympics, anyway, you know, there's drama, there's comedy, there's um you know the 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 just the the size of it obviously um but you'd also lived in two worlds you'd lived in the film music world and you'd also had great success in the pop artist world so you were uniquely qualified to have a foot in both yeah it was quite a good position i suppose you know to to be able to because i knew a lot of the people and be I knew what it takes to work with people like that and how to make it ultimately how you can deliver this stuff. It was 18 months of solid work. And Martin Green, who was one of the producers, uh, I just got a phone call from him one day to come down and meet him um, at the site. And I went down to the site and he was talking to me about it. And I just said, you know, obviously, yes. You know, the, I mean, the, the chances of the Olympics coming to your town. I mean, L- London, that was the third time that London had had it. So, it's not going to come back to London for decades, you know, yeah. more than decades, maybe even a hundred years. Who knows? You know, there's plenty of other places mm. a- a- ahead. So, so the chances of you being in the crosshairs of that situation are quite rare. So, I obviously wanted to do it. Um, I like spectacle. I like challenge. I like the size of it. I like the fact that it was something so completely different. I didn't have a clue what to do or how to do it. The learning curve was quite extraordinary, uh, and in fact, when I finished. Um, the Olympic Committee asked me if I'd do Sochi uh, or um, Brazil, uh, uh, and but I didn't want to be the person who did the Olympics. You know, I thought that was fine for for where I am, really? and that's all good. But um, but you know, you, you realise that the, le- well, the learning curve is so massive, and the things are so unusual and so different that it takes a long time to get your head around it and get it organised. You know, just the technical side of it. Never mind the you know the creative side of it. Um, and so the people who do the sound kind of travel from uh, one enormous event to another. You know, I think they went from the Olympics to the um, like the World Cup or you know the, the Euro mm. football. I don't really. I don't yeah, really it's a tight sport, family. But, those crews. Um, 
you know they they know how to do these enormous things you know when you when you see like the pro tool session ultimately for the end for music was like over 190 channels and oh. all different mixes and dubs for different parts of the world you know and in the arabian countries uh the commentary tends to happen from start to finish non-stop so you have to mix everything hard left and hard right so that you've got a chance of hearing stuff you know it's just all little things like that you're almost like an olympic athlete oh, there. god i the wish and everything there's a lot of pressure yeah mentally i'm an olympic athlete <laughs> if you close your eyes right if you close your eyes i'm the greatest Olymp- no. um but anyway weirdly after that meeting i got a phone call saying it wasn't happening you know they didn't want me to do it and i said oh, okay and then two weeks later they said actually we do so i don't know what happened uh but i came on and it was it was 18 months of work and it was exhausting and the last two weeks were properly balmy you know like i was traveling down with the hard drive with you know the final mixes of everything for the ceremonies on the on the sunday i think it was um by train you know they don't give you any um, preferential treatment so mm-hmm. i had the dub in a bag on my shoulder uh and i was walking down i thinking like tonight there's going to be like a billion and a half people listening to this. And if I get <laughs> mugged, oh God, there's going to be an awful lot of silence. Oh, but, um, you're like the Brinks truck walking around, man. I didn't get mugged and everything was all right. Oh, it was uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was quite weird, but there was a, a couple of weeks where we were in every studio in London. Uh, and it was like Monday morning, madness, Annie Lennox afternoon, take that and the who, Tuesday, Queen, uh, Tiny Temper, you know, like everyone, um, George Michael, every, you know, I mean, Kate Bush, I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, but you don't think about that at the time, you know, I mean, why would you think that that was weird any more than, you know, you, Robert, you know, when you were head of Fox walking into a recording session of enormous film, you know, some people would think, oh my God, that must be the most amazing thing ever, but it's another day at the office for you. I mean, I know you appreciated it, but but you just get used to the fact that that's just it, you know, it's just normal. It's a funny part of our life. I think that I always have one little part of me, and I'm sure you do too, which is a pinch me moment. You know, I'm standing next to Sting and it's both my day job to get him to record this a half step mm. up because the director, <laughs> you know, asked for something different. And it's also, oh, it's Sting, you know, or any of those moments. We've we've had those. Mm. Frankly, I was thinking this morning, David, about when you and I first worked together, how you probably didn't know because you saw me accurately as, you know, the suit at the studio at that moment, but you didn't know how little I knew and how much I was relying on you to kind of Mm -hmm. be this expert film composer who would play me stuff. And I actually tried to remember, and maybe your memory is came back after you recovered it's very, from the very, coronavirus. Very, very, very vivid. Of Here's that. what I remember. We rented you a suite in my fevered imagination, and it's probably a half of a bedroom on the top floor or near the top of a funky hotel in Santa Monica. This is for Independence Day. Roland Emmerich has yeah. hired you. And you yeah. brought over some synths, or we went to some local music store and rented stuff and you proceeded to record and write and record independence day. And I would come down as I thought I was supposed to, 
every cue you played, I thought, fantastic. I love it. I didn't know, you know, luckily it was. But you know that I was, I think, in my first year as the head of music and really didn't know I, what I, to do. I had no idea. I didn't know what to I do mean, with the you, composer. The first, thing, the first thing you did was take me into the commissary. Shocker. And well, of I course, like, eating is the you most... Know, you know, you know, like when you know when you go to New York for the first time, and this is for people who haven't been to New York for the first time. But when you go to New York for the first time, and you get in the cab in from the airport into Manhattan, and it just looks like a movie, uh, and you think like this is this is a movie. It's a movie. Um, and when I went, I mean, I'd never been into a commissary in my life, uh, and so I'm at a commissary at 20th Century Fox with Head of Music, and you're you know, saying hello to everyone that's there, you know, and everyone's saying hello back to you. And the, and the whole thing is like, it's, it's, it's like a Robert Altman movie, you know, like the whole thing feels like the player, you know, it feels like, it just feels like a film. And I had no idea what to do, but then I had no idea what to do about anything. You know, I mean, the, the, the you know, the first time when I, when I got Stargate, I had no idea what to do. You know, you just, I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what to do the first time I did a Bond. I had no idea what to do when I did the Olympics. You know, you kind of rely on instinct and 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 your ears, and you know, hopefully, you know, you receive some kind of information from somewhere which says you should do this uh, and 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 do it. And I mean, my my, my I, I remember like the, the you know, sort of one of the happiest times was when we were putting together the end uh, the end titles. We did it bit by bit. Every time I'd write a new theme, I'd run down the corridor because Nick Dodd, who was orchestrating, was in another room at the at the end of the corridor. With, with his shirts. Piano, with his shirts. It was a three-shirt day. Uh, and um, that's to do with the amount that he perspired during conducting. But um, <laughs> Nick would conduct uh, about a two hours of conducting, and he'd come into the control room soaked, absolutely soaked through, and we'd have to wait for a moment where he got into shirt number two. One-man wet T-shirt contest. Yep. It was, um, it, was, it was unbelievably committed to the art of conducting. Uh, and, and some, you know, and then I went into a couple of people's, um, sessions and I thought like, well, the conductor's not doing anything, you know, he's just sitting there and you can barely see the baton moving. It's like, it's just, there's very different, uh, anyway, you know, we, we, we get there the way we get there. Um, but I used to go in with like these new little bits and pieces and, and we would, um, kind of compiled the end titles because um, we knew it was going to be long. I think there was something like 4,000 people on the credits. And, <laughs> right. You know, I knew it was going to be about 11 minutes long. Yeah. Um, uh, and I thought, well, let's do a completely original piece of music rather than doing the usual thing where you kind of, you know, you have a little segue uh, which after a minute sort of dies away and then you cut into bits of, of cue from the from the movie. Yeah. So let's do a proper end title suite, you know, and uh, of new, you know, newly written stuff. Um, so I was using all the themes, and then we played around with the themes, and and then we'd finished it, and you came over, and I said, well, let's play it then. And he sat down in the room with me and Nick, and we played it just on a piano, you know. I mean, like the, 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 actually, Robert, there were very few properly mocked up cues in those days, you know, because the equipment wasn't as sophisticated as it is now, and I didn't have much of it anyway. Um, and um so it was quite basic i think you know the, and and you know we did a we did about four or five or six maybe major cues the president's speech was the one that got the most attention i think hmm. um so that was mocked up as as effectively and as as completely as possible um before anything else happened um that was when we had the most discussion with dean devlin about certainly um and I remember. um and interestingly, this like this week, like all the 
or there's so many international presidents have been making uh, um, you know speeches to their uh, to their countries and um, like the Queen and Macron and, and, and people have been putting up versions of it with the Independence Day uh, <laughs> um, president oh, speech playing great. behind there and weirdly it works with all of them man that was that was a such a huge movie I remember the the release of you that must have been a baby I was but I I remember going we went to the theater I was but you went was anyway I, yeah, what was that? Was ninety six or ninety four? I'm four, and I'm gonna see Independence. <laughs> I'm older than I look, um, but man, that must have been. Did do you remember the opening weekend? Did you go see it? What do you do when a big movie comes out like that? Do you get excited or do you just hide away? Well, you spend up to the point when you actually finish it being completely terrified. Because yeah. um, I used to go for a walk. It was on Santa Monica, and there was a sort of Mexican restaurant at the top of the hotel. Exactly right, and uh, and. Um, Sometimes we go up there, but most of the time you go out once a day to walk just to get out of the room because it was, you know, it was a suite. It's actually quite, the, the, there were two rooms. One was like a living room and one was a bedroom. The living room became your writing room and the bedroom is where you went when you And I do remember room. something you just said. I don't think you had more than, you know, it felt like they were sort of two Yamaha DX7s and a Roland synth and... And some oh, I can remember exactly old, what was in those racks. Old Mac. It just was so – to think now when you walk into yeah. a composer's It wasn't a Mac. It was an Atari. Oh, my God. It was so low budget. The whole thing was yeah. – can you write – I had 16 in, channels of MIDI. And you wrote a <laughs> massive score on this rented gear. Well, yeah, it was partly that. And then partly when you go to sort of full orchestration with Nick is then like, you know, doing the – you know, expanding it so you actually do – you know, voice the brass properly because you've got obviously on paper you don't have to worry about not hearing anything. But, but you were saying you go out for your walk. You would you go out for your walk and get inspiration? Go out for the walk, and and then I remember watching helicopter helicopters were flying up and down the beach um, in Santa Monica with you know trailing these things, saying the world ends July the fourth, and uh, and right. and um, and buses going past with the with all the posters on it, and you realise you were still in the middle of of writing it. Um, and I think, I think there's only so many of those huge things you can do. I mean, some people seem to do a lot of them, but I always found it actually takes quite a lot out of me. And I think maybe it's because you're doing it all in a room and you never get away from it. And, you know, when the point when you stop writing at whatever it is o'clock in the morning and you know that it's only six hours before you start again and that stuff is in that other room and you can see it glowing, Oh, you know, sure. and you can hear it humming and it sort of keeps saying, come back, come back, come back. Um, and it's quite debilitating in a lot of ways, I think, you know, it's, I mean, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, technology has allowed us to do a lot of things in a lot of different places. Soon after that, I ordered like seven or eight big flight cases because I thought like, if I'm going to come here and do this a lot, you know, I need to get a bit more kit together. So anyway, I ordered this, you know, big, um, flight case system with everything was uh, multi-cored up and we made everything much easier and literally about a year after I got that the internet turned up and everything got faster and people were turning up for writing sessions with a drive and they'd rent a computer when they got to LA so I mean the whole thing sort of changed and then you didn't even have to be in LA you know it's like it's like this you know it's like we were doing Independence Day and everything was on tape but when I was in London and doing Stargate Sorry, no, I was in Santa Monica when I was doing Stargate. Um, yeah, there's a few times where where I was where I was in London, maybe, and writing uh, an American movie, um, and 
everything was on tape. So, you know, they'd, set, they'd have to FedEx it over. So I would get a cut. I'd receive it about a week after it left the edit. Uh, and by the time I got it, obviously it was out of date. And if I sent music over, I would have to send it on a DAT at FedEx. So they would take three days for them to get it. Wow. Um, and so everything just took so much longer. Uh, uh, and now everything's immediate. You know, you get the cuts immediately. You can send the demos immediately. So, you know, there's not as much need to, to, to be somewhere else. You can watch yeah, with the director in real time. Before we move on from Independence Day, I asked you earlier if you had a musical dream because there was a story out there that you, you had a sort of a nightmare about Independence Day um, with the theme. What's the real story? It's absolutely true. Um, you know, normally you have these sort of fevered dreams about what you're doing. It's usually to do with terror and being unable to finish and thinking that you can't do it and all the things, you know, the imposter syndrome, the thing that everyone gets. Uh, and, and, um, I was having a dream and the dream was I went into the LA guitar center, uh, and they had a load of keyboards there and I was playing around with the keyboards and on one of the keyboards, there was a preset that said alien invasion. I thought, I'll see what I pressed the button, listen to it. And I go, that sounds pretty good. Um, now I, I, I have a, I have a thing now when I dream of music, I, I can wake myself up. I know that I'm dreaming about music and if it's a melody, I can wake myself up and I can remember it. And at that point I'll sing it into a, then it was a, a you know, a recording Walkman. Um, but now it would be your phone. Um, and so I was in the middle of listening to this and I'm thinking, oh, this is pretty good. And I woke myself up and I sang it into the Walkman and then, whatever it was, two or three hours later when it was time to get up, I listened to it. I go, actually, you know, that is pretty good. Uh, went into the next room, stuck it, had a go, you know, kind of uh, uh, fattened it up and, and did you know, things that you normally do with it and put it in and it actually worked really well. Um, so I kept it. So it was, I, I can claim zero responsibility for, for that. But, you know, is that any is that really any different from thinking it up anyway? I mean, you know, just that there were pictures with it. The ability to have that skill to wake yourself up, though, that's... That's pretty lucky because most people just blank out. I had a weird dream. I don't remember what happened. You know, Keith Richards has that story that he used to do something similar and was listening back to a cassette that he'd put together of stuff he'd mumbled in his sleep and he heard bum bum ba heard himself singing satisfaction in the middle of a lot of mumbles and thought that's yeah. really worth remembering i mean that story is mm. in his book but um david it was a wonderful experience to work on independence day and i often thought and it clearly sort of just answered this well he must be thinking of moving to los angeles now and because he's going to be one of those big time mm. movie composers and you were one of mm. the first because a lot of people would you know, they'd, they'd come mm. from London or they'd come from Sydney, Australia, and they'd have a big success in Hollywood, and they still do. But you quite admirably stayed close to home. I, I always thought that was kind of cool that you didn't – and I think it's – frankly, God bless all my friends who live in the sound of my voice. I think it's a very, very musical environment in London for filmmaking that keeps you slightly removed – from the madness here. Well, I mean, one one of the reasons 
why I didn't want to be there was because the experiences I had were all basically writing in tiny hotel rooms mm. for months on end and and not particularly enjoying that part of it. You know, I mean, I found I found it quite difficult to be that isolated because I didn't really know anyone uh, in Los Angeles. And even if I did, it wouldn't matter because you don't have time to see anyone. So, um, you know, it's almost like you could be anywhere. And I thought, well, if I could be anywhere, then I might as well be at home. Yeah, um, nice. And... As Don Black said, I've got my own mug. Why would I want to be anywhere else? Oh, that's um, so great. But, but um, the thing that really focused it on me, I was doing something um, with Peter Gabriel and um, it was something that ended up not happening, but we were sort of talking about it for a couple of weeks. Did you go down to Box to the incredible? Oh, yeah, I've recorded there loads world. of times. I love, it. I love it down there. It's, it's such an great. amazing wanna, environment. Just for those who... Uh, aren't aware Peter Gabriel of course one of the greatest it's so nice to hear you say you know I was doing something Peter Gabriel and I sort of have to steady myself on my chair because clearly one of the great artists and musicians but he has an incredibly wonderful recording studio in Box England called Real World which uh, one of the great days of my life was being in Box with Peter just so great. You just feel like it's a place where you want to make music, where it you is. have to make music. You know, yeah. it, it sort of bleeds it. It's an extraordinary thing. Um, but I was doing this project, and anyway, it, so nothing came of it because I, I had a phone call from him one morning, and he said, he goes, David, uh, I'm driving with my family in, in Portugal or something, and, you know, it's just, this is something, it's, it's very interesting, and, I, you know, I've loved doing what we've done so far, he goes, but I've decided to put life first. And I've never forgotten that, you know, when you think about what your life is and how much time that you have and how you spend your day, you know, the only thing that I have any control over is what am I doing today? Uh, And I sort of decided from that point on that I only really wanted to do things that I really liked with people that I really liked as much as possible uh, in an environment that I was going to enjoy myself because... You know, it's like I didn't want to end up just thinking like, oh, what if, what if, what if this is the last day? You know, what if I end up, you know, like lying on my deathbed that night, looking at the ceiling, going like, God, why did I spend today with that idiot? You know, changing, <laughs> you know, one M six version seven R eleven when I could have been doing something else. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I mean. You know, if, if, if I get to the end of every day and I sort of think like this, if I get to the end of every day and say, you know what, like today might have been difficult, but I did love it. You know, I did like it and I wouldn't change it. Um, that's how I try and do it. And I always felt that like being in Los Angeles would mean that I would just end up doing more of the more of the more of the same. You're right. You know, one film after one film after another. Uh, and I know some people are happy doing that, but um I, you know, I, I want to do other things anyway. You know, I mean, I love, I love theater. I love musicals. I love, I love records. I love radio. Uh, and, um, you know, this is a great thing about having Vaz as my agent was that I said the very first day that I spoke to him, um, I said, like, could you just do me the biggest favor of all and, and never tell me what's best for me, you know, never say you should do this because of that. Um, because instinctively, you know, I, I think the only thing, the only, the only thing that matters to me is what am I doing in, in these hours that I have? And, you know, what, what, what happens after that doesn't really matter. You know, the only thing that matters is what am I doing at the time? 
uh, and if I instinctively feel that I want to work on something and I'm going to enjoy it, that's where the value is for me. You know, everything that comes after is, you know, arguably um, icing, I suppose, you know, and, and, and I've done films where I thought they've been great and they haven't really done anything. <laughs> and I've done films that maybe haven't been so great, they've done well. So we have no control over any of that anyway. So the only thing I have control over is what am I doing today? Uh, and, and, and God bless him, he's never said that. He's never said it. <laughs> That's so nice. That's why he's still my agent. We have a lot more to get to with uh, David. We want to talk about James Bond and Sherlock. We will be right back with much more. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast. And The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Justin Hurwitz. You're listening to Score the Podcast. Now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio, Casino Royale. We're here with David Arnold joining us from London. And uh, David, your your history with Bond, is it, there's a really cool story behind it with uh, an album and John Barry taking a liking to it. Can you tell us a little bit about how that connection happened and, and his recommendation for you to take that first Bond film? I don't even know if that's true. I mean, I'm saying that now. I actually don't know if that's true. I've never had any... No one's ever said to me, John Barry recommended you. Really? Um Yeah. Um, John uh, was at Air Studios recording something in Studio One. I was in my room upstairs. George Martin, who I'd got to know really well, knew I was a massive John Barry fan. He said, I, I can't do the voices. Would you like to come and meet John Barry? I said, yes, of course I would. Uh, so come down and meet John Barry. And, uh, you think, and you oh, were a big Bond um, fan, by the way, right? Oh, yeah. You know, you think like, well, okay, well, let's live and let die and the other 11s all in the same room. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, extraordinary really uh um and but i was working on this record of bond covers uh and when George you met barry were you in the middle of the record or had you i was in the middle of it yeah yeah i'd already done about six i think and um you want to just tell our fans and who are listening what that record was before you say to john just because i remember when you did it yeah it was called shaken and stirred uh, and it's basically covers of Bond songs that I'd liked with people that I liked as artists doing them because I loved records. It was after I'd started it after Stargate, I think it was in 1995. And I think it came out two years later, basically waiting for artists to become available. But, um, 
So it started before Goldeneye was happened. So it was in the it was in the uh, the kind of mire of Bond development, where after Timothy Dalton's last movie, there was all these problems, and they couldn't get another one made for six or seven years. So it was in that sort of dark period that I that I did the record, and I wanted to make that record because I wanted to make a record because I loved radio, and I thought one of the most exciting things that have ever happened to me was 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 hearing the first record I'd made with Björk called Play Dead played on the radio in the UK. You know. And it's like, for me, you know, the radio was my, that's where I grew up with it. And hearing it on the radio was just quite extraordinary. Uh, and because, you know, radio is the, is, 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 is the medium that is in everyone's home, you know, even more than TV, it's more intimate than that because you can walk around with headphones on and listen to radio, you know, it's in your car. Um, and, you know, I've, I've sort of recently come to the conclusion that I think it's, it's, I think it's the greatest entertainment medium is radio i think as much as i love film as much as i love theater i think radio is 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 the greatest and i think songs are the greatest art form um and sorry to all the poets and artists and everyone no else. but i was just thinking the opposite <laughs> Some, which is there are a lot of radio people something. right now that would like to take this quote and put it on a billboard because there's yeah, such seriously. terror that radio has been well it's available diminished. for rental if anyone wants to use it <laughs> a um, license but i do I, I do think like that and so i thought like well i want to make a record and obviously before i had any success with the films you'd make a phone call to someone and it would be like who and then you know a couple of movies come out and things go well and you're like oh it's you and it's fine so anyway so i ended up getting you know sort of like a wish list of people who had music i'd loved anyway and, and i thought i just want to make a bond record i don't have to write it you know, so I can do it quick between movies. And um, that's how it started. Um, anyway, so George introduced me to John and George said, David's been making this record, a lot of your um, a lot of your songs. Would you like to listen to this couple? And he goes, yes. So I played him a couple and he really liked it. And we sort of hit it off and, and that was it. I don't know if he was, um, you know, um, uh, sort of happy that someone was not doing big movies in order to do covers of his songs. Uh, but, you know, he liked what he heard and, and, and he was vocal about that. Um, but, but I mean, Barbara Broccoli told me a story which I have no reason to disbelieve. Um, so I suspect this is probably the actual truth. Um, I would send, I mean, I'd send Eon Production to obviously produce the movies, um, some of the tracks, and artwork ideas because I know they're very tight on uh, on copyrights of things and I don't want anyone to be offended and I thought well, I'll just keep them in the loop of what mm -hmm. I'm doing so, you know, I don't get sued by anyone when it comes out. You're not allowed to have a white cat. You know, you're not allowed to use the words James Bond or 007 or something, you know, right? just let's just keep it so so everyone knows what was going on. Uh, and I'd sent them a couple of tracks um, and they'd actually put them into the temp score of Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, Whoa. Which nice. I which I didn't know about, um, but Barbara was um, Barbara's story to me was that she went into a record shop. Remember them, and she mm. was buying um, some CDs of of um, other composers to think about who could be the composer of Tomorrow Never Dies. And the guy at the checkout said to her, "You should listen to David Arnold stuff," and threw a couple of records her way. Um, and she said, "You know, that's that's what she told me." So. Somewhere in the world, there is a 
guy I used to work in uh, HMV in yeah. Oxford Street, who yeah, I some owe clerk, a, totally a very like large that. drink to, or a very small house. So, yes, I, both. perhaps a martini. And so, and, I just and wonder. So, and so off, off she went, and then and then um, they were putting it. So the track that they used was the version that I did of On Her Majesty's Secret Service with propeller heads into the uh, the the BMW remote control driving sequence in Hamburg with Pierce Brosnan in Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, and it sort of worked really well in that. And that was that was the thing, I think, that convinced them. Plus the fact that then I won a Grammy for Independence Day, which didn't hurt. Yeah, uh, I remember and, that night too. Um, I remember thanking you. It was you. an afternoon, and I think. You, we were at an afternoon. It, uh, it was an afternoon thing, yes. Yeah. Yes, I tripped over Alita Adams on the way up the Not escalators. terrible. You're allowed. I was actually re- I was actually recording Iggy Pop the next day, uh, and um, it was in New York, uh, and it was at the Grammys. Anyway, so I was recording with Iggy Pop, and um, uh, the next day, so I couldn't really do anything outrageous. But anyway, so we went to the Grammys, and luckily I won. Right. Anyway, so I met Iggy the next day. We're down at Electric Lady, and um, and uh, I said, oh, I went to the Grammys last night. He goes, yeah, the Grammys suck, man. I said, Yeah, really, yeah, it was awful. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, that was an interesting weekend. Um, uh, and so it's sort of working and pleasure, but I think, you know, the fact that independence, they did so well around the world. So it was a big movie that did well with a big score that did well. Uh, and they knew that I loved bond music and I'd made a record about it. So, you know, in a way it was, it was maybe less of a, a, of a gamble. But they still made me kind of audition for it. You know, they asked me to mm. sort of score the, the the opening sequence, the action, the pre-title sequence in Tomorrow Never Dies as a kind of, you know, just to see what you would do. Um, and, you know, like with all Bond movies, I always think that the, you know, the song is is, is crucial. You know, the song is crucial to the to the tone and the, oh, and well, the, and the heart Cornell of the score. Song. You know, if, 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 they, if they're working together, you know, Chris was amazing. Were you so part of the selection them. of those when you're doing the scores? Um, you're a part of the discussion, but um, it's uh, there. There are other, obviously, big voices involved. You know, like directors and producers and studio, because you know it's a very different beast to what it was in the sixties. You know, then if you know, I mean, if you read John Burlingame's book about it, I've just done a, a sort of five two hour program on James Bond music for um, Scala Radio over here, and. Um, uh, you know, you, 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 you know, in those days, it was you know literally John Barry bumping into someone at a hotel and saying, "Do you want to do a Bond song?" Yeah, uh, and and then they would go, "Yeah," and then that would be it. They'd be doing it, you know. Um, but now, you know, it's it's a very very different. Did John Barry tr- uh, make the decision to not do the next film, or do you know why he didn't come back for? Uh... I, I I don't actually know. I mean, I never spoke to John about music, really. Um, really, I mean, I could have spoken to him forever about music but sometimes when you get to know someone in a certain way it always feels like slightly intrusive and not only that you know you just got the sense that there's probably a million other people who would have asked him the same question already you know mm. and i didn't want to be that person to be sitting there going like how did you do this and you know why did you do that? so i never i mean i don't regret it um because in a way i don't want to know you know i know that the music of his i love i love and uh, I don't really want to know why he did stuff or how he did stuff. You know, it's it's it was nice enough just to be able to say hello and get a, get a phone call from him. You know, it's like you get a phone call and come up and visit. Oh, it's John Barry, brilliant. I was talking to him. I was talking to him last night on the phone. Uh, uh, one night on the phone, 
And uh, he said, oh, David, I've got to call you back. He goes, I've got, I've got Bob Redford on the line. <laughs> you know, like little things like that. You were a big Bond fan. And, you know, there's a lot of people when you when you jump into a franchise that has such diehard fans. Were you nervous about delivering? And, and I know it wasn't quite the social media era, so you weren't able to get that instant feedback. No, it wasn't. Were there no, nerves none at all about just making sure that you lived up to the sound of Bond? Well... They left me to do it pretty much the way I wanted to do it. Um, I mean, the thing that is fantastic about Barbara and Michael Wilson, who produced the films, is that they hire people and let them do their job. So Mm. they don't interfere, you know, like they they interfere when they know it's, you know, maybe going too far one way or the other. Uh, But they let people do the things that they think they should be doing, uh, the creative people. Uh, And with that, you know, that great power <laughs> becomes great responsibility. Yes. Uh, and, you know, for me nice. being a, you know, a sort of lover of the, uh, of, of, of the, of the series, um, you know, coming back uh, to it or coming to it at all, uh, you know, I was very aware that I, I, I mean, I was saying at the time when I did interviews about Tomorrow Never Dies, it's a long time ago now that I sort of wanted to have, you know, wanted wanted to have one foot in the 60s and one in the 90s mm-hmm. um, and always be respectful of what's gone before and be aware of what's gone before. Um, and I think after GoldenEye, which was a sort of divisive score, uh, certainly uh, uh, the, the, the guy who was head of music at uh, MGM at the time was quite often saying, can we put the Bond theme in here? Can we put the Bond theme in here? You know, I think they were trying to sort of claw back maybe something hmm. uh, that they felt might have been missing a little bit in, in parts hmm. of GoldenEye. I'm not sure. I mean, I thought GoldenEye was in parts very brilliant musically. Um, and um, so, you know, there's a couple of moments maybe where the Bond theme cropped up where I might not have done it quite so frequently, but um, there was plenty of room in that film to do. There's a lot of music and there was a lot of other things. And, um, you know, I had some, I had like my thematic ideas and the song I'd written with, uh, with Don that Katie Lang uh, recorded called Surrender um, was like my spinal cord. You know, it was the skeleton of the score and everything was yeah. hang off, you know, would hang off of that really. Were you ever in the discussion about this new Bond film? They, they made some composer changes. Did you ever hear from anybody or did you ever no. speak up about interest about it? Nope. No, I would never phone up and go like, hey guys, remember me. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's like they know what they're doing. I mean, this is a, you know, I mean, you know, they let the directors have their choices, you know, and key key moments. And it's important, you know, it's like I don't want to be I – mean, I remember when I met with uh, Sam Mendes um, when he was doing Skyfall. And, you know, I knew that he works with Tom all the time, so I knew sort of Tom was going to do it, but he very kindly took a meeting and I, you know, didn't expect to – it for it to turn out any other way but i went to to meet him and i said look sam i said that you know the, the only thing for me is that you know the last thing i want is to be sitting in a chair next to you wishing that i was someone else you know i mean that's the the last thing you want because then you know the guy is looking for reasons not to like stuff you know it's like well this isn't what my guy would have done and you know it's a horrible thing so um yeah i mean it's, it's, in, in a way it was quite odd i mean I, I i was doing the olympics anyway so it would have been almost impossible to do both but yeah um but that's not the point you know i mean the point was that i went there to say you know listen thanks very much for, t- for, for taking this meeting but i fully expect tom to be doing it because he's your guy and it's like that's what that's what i would expect to happen you know and um uh, uh, uh and that is what happened so you know 
I mean, I still do a lot of stuff with Eon. You know, we do bits and pieces together, uh, and we're always talking. And um, but no, I'd never, I'd never do that. You know, they know where I am. And would uh, you do another and, Bond if they came calling? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like Quantum of Solace felt a little bit like unfinished business. You know, it felt like we were sort of felt like I was sort of turning a slight corner with that score. You know, it mm. felt like it was kind of leaner and tougher and more sinewy and, and, and you know, it's getting into the heart of what Daniel was doing with the character because Casino Royale for the greater part was an enormous ramp up to the reveal of the Bond theme. You know, it was, it mm-hmm. was exploring him becoming Bond, but alongside that you had the whole relationship with Vesper Lint, you know, which was the, his most significant relationship on film i think outside mm. of tracy and on her majesty's secret service obviously who he married um so and you know that relationship formed his entire emotional um journey through i mean i haven't seen no time to die but you know i know it's part of that as well you know so he's so she has been a shadow across you know all four of daniel craig's films uh and we know that he's had to carry that weight uh, with him the entire time, uh, no matter who else he's got involved with, that's still slightly unfinished business. So you know, it's a it's an unusual thing for Bond to have kind of through strands to that degree. Um, but I always thought that if I was going to do another one with Daniel, that you know, there's a, there's a few cues on Quantum of Solace um, that it felt like that would be my starting point in a way for what I did next. Nice. Um, and um, uh, and you know, well, you know, I've always said that. I've got a very special pencil that's always sharpened. Nice. Oh, I love that. If, if, if he ever comes knocking. Yeah. But (laughs) you know, I'm seriously super happy and amazed that I've managed to do five. I thought one, one was like amazing enough, but you know, five is ridiculous. Um, we want to get to Sherlock a little bit. You and Michael Price won an Emmy for, for that show. And when that first came about, did, did the producers come to you because you had the British kind of badass investigator spy kind of sound or no? did they want something like that? Well, it's an odd thing because actually it's a, there is a James Bond connection. Actually, it's quite it's, it's quite strange. But um, when I got Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, I was still doing stuff with film school people. And uh, there was a film, a little short sort of comedy film, as part of a series on a on a on a network called Channel Four over here, where I was um, playing the part of a record producer <laughs> uh, on for camera. a band, like for a for a punk on camera, yeah, for a punk band. And one of the guys playing the bass player in the band was David Williams, who went on to you know obviously he's working with Matt Lucas and went on to do Little Britain and Come Fly with Me, and now he's like the biggest children's author in the uk possibly europe i don't know mm. um you know anyway, massive bond fan so he had a small part in that we would we would talk about james bond all the time and i just got my first bond movie and i said do you want to come to the recording session he goes yeah can i bring a friend i said yeah so he brought his friend who was mark gatis at mm. that point league of gentlemen uh and mark arrived uh suited and booted and we had a chat and i got to know him um and I ended up doing a couple of things in League of Gentlemen and then started doing little short films and slightly longer films with Mark. Uh, and then I got a phone call from him 
many years later wow. saying, can I come up to your studio and play you something? I want to show you something. And I said, well, okay. So he came and he said, we've sort of reinvented Sherlock uh, and it's an hour long pilot. Um, can you have a look and see what you think? So I watched it and I said, I think this is the best bit of British TV I've seen in 10 years. Uh, I'd really love to do it. And he goes, I'm not asking you to do it. I've got someone to do it. I just want to know what you think about it. <laughs> because they were having some questions about bits and pieces of it, you know. So we had that discussion. Anyway, then 10 days later, I get a phone call saying, we now haven't got a director and we haven't got a composer. Can you come in and do it? It's a, we've got about a week to do it and there's very little money. Can you do it? And I goes, like, yeah, I'd love to do it. Um, but I was in the midst at that point of doing... Um, uh, Narnia for it us was a Fox film as well wasn't yeah, it? yeah it was uh, so I was doing Voyage of the Dawn Treader uh, and I thought I'm never going to be able to do both of these things so Michael who I'd worked with before uh, I said can you come in and help us on this uh, so we did half each uh, and um, BBC then got this 60 minute um, show decided not to broadcast it uh, had a change of heart about the structure of it, wanted it to be, you know, longer film rather than 660s. It was going to be 390s. So then the whole thing stopped for 18 months while they rewrote the scripts to be 90 minutes long. Wow. And um, mm. and then when they asked me to do it again, I thought, well, I can't not ask Michael back because he's just really tight. Part of the reason why it worked was because of him. So, um, so I asked him, if he do the whole show and he did and it was lovely because a you only get to do half the work which is nice and b and b you've got someone else to you know to you've got you've got someone else to 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 send your stuff to and they can say this is good or that's not so good or maybe yeah. you could try this you know it's safe criticism when you say you split it did you guys like literally break up half the episodes and score them or did you work together in tandem on cues and themes um, well, we both watched it and then we had a list of cues that we wanted to do and mm. all the ones that I wanted to do, Michael didn't want to do and vice versa. So Perfect. it was really great. Um, but what we've never said is sort of who wrote what. So we've never said who wrote, yeah, who wrote what. It's the Lennon uh, because we want it. Well, you know, it's like you kind of want it to feel like a singular voice. Of course. And I think it does. Uh, I think it does. Uh, and part of the reason for that working is people not knowing who did what. Um, but it, it was a proper collaboration. That's you know, lovely. It was, uh, it was, it was some of my favorite cues in Sherlock and Michael's, uh, <laughs> certainly more than mine. Um, but you know, we'd never say who did what, because I think that would just spoil it, you know, and, and I'm sort of glad that no one's been able to really spot the difference either. I think before we let you go, I want to know, are you and Giacchino going to do any more, assuming we can all go back into a theater, any more mm. fabulous evenings together, any battles? Well, what's interesting about Michael is that, well, especially now we've got this sort of two-meter distancing thing. Mm. Um, I think with Michael, if we could make that about two miles, <laughs> it, would be, it, would, it would be about right. Uh, um, you know, we, I mean, we had the time of our lives doing. I mean, it was so silly. In Can a you way. tell was, people was, just briefly what we're talking about? There was a concert. Yes, I'd been a lot to, of build up, like a boxing match. Yeah, Michael. Michael had um, Michael had had his fiftieth birthday at the Royal Albert Hall, 
Uh, and I said to him at the time, I said, that's amazing. I said, I've never had a birthday party where people have to pay to come in. Um, <laughs> but um, he was, um, he had all these guests there and directors and it was a proper event. You know, he had a screen and it was like, it was brilliant. Uh, played all his stuff. Uh, and we were just uh, afterwards just chatting. Uh, and we just said, like, we should do something together. And 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 Lucy Noble, who runs the Albert Hall, said, if you do it, I'll put it on. So I said, great. And it was I think it was, it was a year or a year and a half after that was the first available date. So this was like last October. And um, so we decided to do a, you know, like a sort of me versus him thing, you know, like alien versus predator. <laughs> uh, and um, where, you know, we would have sort of themed playoffs. So, you know, it, it was Stargate versus Star Trek. It was Battle of the Benedicts, you know, Sherlock versus Doctor Strange. Uh, oh, and... And it was, it was, so that was the tone of the evening. Um, uh, and we dressed up in, you know, silly costumes and did stupid things and directors and writers came along and introduced things. And it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and, you know, we, we talked about, you know, we've got asked to do it actually in Dublin in June, but obviously that's, uh, all, all oh. off, but, uh, I think it's sort of show we'd like to, you know, love to do it in, in, in Los Angeles. Did they film it? When, I wonder if they no. could distribute it. No? No, didn't film it. No. I mean, it's so expensive to do these things. Yeah, well, you'd do yeah. it in LA. That'd be great. You'd do it at the Hollywood Bowl. The Hollywood Bowl have never done anything that I've done. I mean, I know we tried to get Casino Royale on there, like with, you know, live to picture, and I think they didn't want to do it. And Independence Day, live to picture, which we've done twice, and it's gone down gangbusters. It's been yes. amazing. Uh, and they didn't want to do that either. So I think, I don't know what it is, the Hollywood Bowl of sort of nixed everything we've tried to it do might there. Be, so, you know, uh, when you walk into the green room of the Hollywood Bowl, they have your photograph there, like a wanted picture, like a criminal. They have a right. straight on and a profile shot. <laughs> and yeah, big... that's my Tinder profile as well. <laughs> <laughs> David, if you weren't I'm a musician, airbrushed the scars what would you out. be? If you weren't a musician, what would you be? You seem, you're, you're a little bit of a comedian. I'm wondering if you ever did any like try attempts at uh, stand up or anything. I haven't, no. I I, the thing is, if you're a composer and you're mildly amusing, then people think that you're funny. But if you went to see, if you went to a stand-up show and I came on and said all this stuff, it would be like, this guy's not funny. You know, it's, to do, it's, it's to do with expectations. You know, like sometimes when you're singing, uh, you know, like because I demo all my songs and everything and I sing them uh, and my voice put it this way, a, fr a friend of mine came to see me doing a, a little sort of song tryout thing at a show once. Um, and there's like these little underground places in the 2000s where I was like trying two or three songs. I was on this, um, you know, people come and try out songs and it's lovely, you know, it's just, there's not many, there's about 100 people in the audience, you know, artists looking for songs, A&R people looking for, from publishers looking for stuff. And it's just writers who get up and do a couple of songs and see what it is. Anyway, so I was doing it uh, and a friend of mine was a bass player had never seen me sing before and he came up to me afterwards and he goes you know there's something not right there's something not right with that David he goes oh, what is it he goes that voice coming out of that face <laughs> um, so my singing voice is very different to you know this voice can you give uh, us a couple notes here I mean no, you're kind of teasing not. the audience right now. <laughs> no, the David Arnold album is coming up got no reverb I think that you have <laughs> actually touched on a really interesting point and it's a good good 
wrap-up point, which is it's about time. Composers, I realized when you said it, composers are always funny. They always have, even the driest of composer that you think he's a very serious guy, you know, or in these meetings, or this, this mm. young lady who we're working with is very serious, and you're with the director, and everything's very dramatic. And then the director leaves the room, and they, you know, speak like a sailor, and they are incredibly funny about how silly that meeting was. And I think you've just kind of let me know that you can't do the job of composing for film or television without a very healthy dose of sarcasm, irony, and what the fuck, because people say things Yeah, I know, I know a lot of writers who are like that, and it's like, oh, they're really funny. I mean, like, properly funny. <laughs> yes. Um, but I've also been in rooms with people who are comedians, and you realize very quickly that there is a level of funny like you know like the like like the kid at school who's really good at singing and dancing and they go oh my god they should go to drama school you know and then you go to drama school and all of a sudden everyone is a million times better you know it's like the the the, the levels are completely different but i mean I, th- I suppose part of the thing about being a composer is that you know you are part psychiatrist aren't you and 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 part of that is 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 learning about what make people tick you know, I mean, you have to do it in film. You have to understand the storytelling and the and the characterization and, and people's motivations. And you know, so you become quite adept, I think, at, at, at being able to you know scissor your way into to, to people's um, personalities and, and have an opinion on it because that's what film music is. It's like you have to have an opinion on what it is that you're seeing straight away. I mean, it, you might be proved wrong at some point. Um, but you know, that's kind of what the job is, isn't it? You know, you have to come in with an angle and go like, this is what I think this guy is. And this is what I think he thinks. Uh, and this is what I think he's doing and why he's doing it. Um, and, and also, like I said, you know, like you're on your own a lot and, and actually to get out and meet carbon based human beings, it's like just to be able to talk. It's like, don't send me back yet. You know, let's just sit around and talk stupid for another hour. Yeah. Because as soon as that door shut, I'm back in that world, you know, which is, um, I don't get to see anyone. I wonder if the comedy actually comes mostly from the studio executives. And I can say that having been one, because those are the ones that would say things in meetings where I would be tremendously alarmed that the composer was going to quit immediately because the level of stupidity had just hit a new... <laughs> yeah, I've had, I've, had, I've had a few of those. But composers, I've to had, their had, great credit, would often say, that's very interesting. You know, let me think about that a bit. And I think yeah. you are a genius and a spiritual figure, not to say, that's crazy. But, David, that's why you've done so well. And what a pleasure. What a what pleasure, a pleasure indeed. Our our, our resident uh, score the podcast therapist, David Arnold. Absolutely, we've like scratched oh, scratch the surface. Oh, it's so yeah, nice. we might have to have you back on. We did. We had a bunch more stuff to talk about, but we know that you got to get back to uh, doing nothing. <laughs> you got to yep, get back to some walk isolation. around the house and look at some more walls. There you go. I think that's <laughs> yeah. what we're all going to do this afternoon. The fifteenth time today, I'm going to look in the fridge and see if there's anything that I need to buy. Oh, again. if you, you, we could send you some, you know, yogurt or chicken soup from L.A. If you run low. Well, well, yeah, next uh, uh, next time when when all this is over, maybe we could do a score the podcast in London and we can go uh, in hang person. Out at Air studio, carbon based yeah. well, you know humans. It will it it will be over. 
yes. it will be over and things will find a new normal and you know as long as everyone's healthy and happy that's, yeah. the, that's including the yourself thing, so. including we're glad yourself. Uh, you're feeling better and uh, i'm, thanks for I'm happier than anyone that i'm okay <laughs> oh, i bet <laughs> Uh, a reminder to our listeners, you can follow us a number of ways. Instagram, Score Movie, Twitter, at Score the Podcast, Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary. And don't forget to send us your questions. Score the mailbox at epicleft.com. Stick around after the show. We're going to play you a clip from Spitfire Audio so you can hear how to elevate your music. Robert, take it away. Hey, thanks, David. What a pleasure. It's been quite a journey seeing where both of us first met to where we are today. I will always yep. treasure those memories of Independence Day. The world didn't Me end too. on July 4th. Not yet. Not that year anyway. Not that year. So we keep <laughs> rocking. And Look at us now. I'll see you next time in person at Air Lindhurst when I get back to London. Hey, score fans. Yeah. We'll see you in a week. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. David, thanks for being our guest this week. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, SCORE listeners, we're so grateful for the support of our sponsor, Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herman Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to listen to a musical demo of what that sounds like. Also, as an exclusive to SCORE listeners, Spitfire Audio is offering 20% off your first order. That's good for over 50 of their libraries. It's exclusive, Robert. It's exclusive to Score, the podcast listeners. You guys are so lucky you're in like a cool club. Score, the podcast listeners, get 20% off. You go to spitfireaudio.com and you enter promo code SCORE2020 so they know we sent you. Here's a clip from the BBC Symphony Orchestra package.
Again, just go to SpitfireAudio.com and enter the promo code SCORE2020 to save 20% off your first order with Spitfire. And uh, make sure also that promo code is used so they know we sent you. Robert, I think uh, we'll see you next week. Next week, I can't wait.